the night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? I'm fucking pissed off, Matt. For listeners out there, as always, Matt is professional, Matt is organized, Matt has planned, Matt knows what the fuck he's doing. Every Wednesday, 9 Eastern, 8 Central is when the show starts. Without fail, man is ready to go. Meanwhile, this fuckboy, I come up here at 8 o'clock, ready to turn my computer on and get started. My computer takes 25 minutes to fucking turn on. So we're 30 minutes behind schedule, and this fucking rant is not helping a goddamn thing. But I'm angry, and I'm ready to do the show, Matt. How are you? It's good to see you. God damn it. Let's do a show. Yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm ready to go. We, we got we got three stories. We, we, we're going to discuss them. It's going to be a good fucking time. Ah! <laughs> but yeah, we, we got three stories. We're going to talk about them. And this is a week where we're retreading some familiar ground because we're looking at sequels to books that we have already covered in previous episodes. We're already circling the drain, folks. <laughs> yeah, because there aren't 80 plus years of Batman stories to go over that we haven't even touched on. We got to swing back to ones we already have. But Next week's going to be a clip show. You know, but we'll still have to do the framing sequence. So you'll get some new material, we swear. <laughs> and you'll fucking like it. Damn right. But the first of our sequels this week is Bloodstorm. This is an original graphic novel written by Doug Mensch, penciled by Kelly Jones, with inks by John Beatty, colors by Les Dorscheid, letters by Todd Klein, edited by Denny O'Neill, with a cover date of January 1995. Batman is a complete vampire in this story, the sequel to Batman Dracula Red Rain, wherein he fights the vampiric urge that drives him while the Joker enters the scene and begins to manipulate the remaining of Dracula's vampire army to his own sinister needs. We've got a complete reunion of the Red Rain creative team. And if you liked Red Rain, I'm pretty sure that Bloodstorm is going to hit the, the same spot that Red Rain did. Yeah, it's, it's really more of the same. The, the story is a direct sequel. It's a direct follow-up. It's just continuing, you know, the saga of, you know, the, the first book is, okay, what if Batman ha- had to fight Dracula? Okay, he'd probably have to become a vampire. All right, book two, how does he negotiate being a vampire? Uh, and then book three is not well. Yes, we will get to Crimson Mist and... Oh boy, that one, <laughs> I'd say it was bloody, but I mean, all of these are, are bloody, but that one is, oh boy, Bruce. It's that example of, you know, why doesn't Batman kill? Because once he starts, it's like eating a potato chip. Once you Absolutely. Run, just can't stop. But, you know, you know we'll, we'll certainly get to this when we talk about the ending. The whole saga is a natural progression. Like there is no leap in here. Once you accept the idea that vampires exist in Batman's world and Batman had to become a vampire, everything else is a logical progression. So this story, the story of stories is solid. It is. And this middle chapter is really a story about addiction. The, entire thing is a metaphor for drug addiction. I mean, he says it at one point later on, but you see that the blood, the desire to drink blood is driving Bruce and he's fighting against it. And it's brutal. These sequences of the temptation and it's really right there on the page and it's not easy no especially as you see him constantly losing right uh he's 
from the first page, he's at, you know, sort of his high point. And the whole book is a decline outside of obviously meeting Catwoman and finding the secret to warding off vampirism, apparently. And that goes about as well as everything in this particular world does. Not well. No, not well. As opposed to the first volume, which, you know, you had Batman and Alfred and Jim Gordon. And they were the only established characters of the mythology. Here we do get Joker and we do get Catwoman. But it's interesting where these characters exist in the mythos of this world. Since Joker, while Batman is clearly aware of Joker... When Joker begins his play, the mobsters in Gotham don't seem to have any idea who Joker is. So he's not that presence that looms over Gotham. And this is the first meeting of Bruce and Selina. There's no indication that they've met and there's no indication that she was Catwoman before she becomes the literal Catwoman of this story. Yeah, it's it's very much she literally transforms into Catwoman, um, you know, like you said. And I'm trying to remember, like, what was she doing when she catches that, you know, that bite? Was she just like out in Gotham? I don't think I don't think she was criming. Like, I don't think there's any idea that, you know, this this Catwoman uh, is any sort of a uh, villain at all. No, she's just walking home and gets nabbed by one of the Joker's hench vamps, his sort of lieutenant hench vamp, Creech, who does the wolf transformation that some vampires can do depending on the mythology. But that seems to be his particular shtick, his kind of lycanthrope vampire hybrid which is a really cool Jones visual. And I kind of wish we saw more of Creech in his Wolfman form because he only does it a couple times in the book. And it's like, I really wanted to see more werewolves. Now, this would be a story where Batman fighting vampires and werewolves would have been a good thing. Oh, God damn, that would have been fun. Uh, But yeah, more more Wolf Creech, less of... Gordon and uh, Alfred's facial expressions. Uh, Again, I love Kelly Jones. He's the man I want drawing uh, Batman and vampires. But when it comes to drawing actual people, it doesn't play out so well. Now, his bizarre anatomy and bizarre faces work for Batman because he's part monster here. And for the Joker, because... Despite him still being human, your definition of human and the Joker may vary. But yeah, Alfred and Gordon aren't the the winners in the face lottery in this book. Yeah, they they read more like caricatures to me. It doesn't really fit thematically, and it's just it's just strikes an odd note. Let's talk, though, about like the central plot here outside of Batman's slow deterioration. The idea that Joker becomes the leader of the vampires just because he shows up and says, you guys need a leader. <laughs> I, I, I can be that guy. And it's it's weird, but I, I think it's it's like a, you know, opposites attract sort of sort of synergy. Uh, of course, the vampires don't need Joker, but he's fun to have around as a reader anyway. I like that it's sort of a reverse Renfield, that Renfield is Dracula's daytime servant because vampires need someone to go out and do stuff during the day. And the Joker comes to them and is like, I can do the things you can't. And you've got to listen to me because I'm awesome. And he's got holy water and the flower instead of acid. And he's totally ready to, to play these guys. And he absolutely does. And what he does is great because we've still got the few vampires that survived the end of Red Rain are still living the way Dracula had them, living in the sewers. And 
Joker decides, no, you're the ultimate predators. You should be top of the food chain, and I don't want to live in the sewers. So we're going to take out all the mobsters in Gotham, and we're going to make vampire mafia. Uh, but uh, but boss, um, we're just kind of interested in blood. We uh, we don't really uh, need money. Uh, what are we gonna do? Huh? I need money, and <laughs> they have access to bodies. So there we go. The, the Joker has an answer for everything, and he is a great Joker. And Jones draws him with his long hair and this big top hat and there's a, a a sort of jack the ripper vibe with the hat and the coat this sort of victorian-y looking thing but it also has a very classic horror movie sort of you know universal monsters sort of, sort of vibe going on there and catwoman metamorphosing into a literal catwoman uh, reminds me of val luton's cat people so this thing really has a classic horror vibe to it that I really dig. Yeah, and it's it's a tragedy. Like thematically, visually, the whole thing, again, going back to the idea of this, this trilogy really succeeding, it all hangs together. And just like Red Rain, it was a pleasurable read. I enjoyed the hell out of it. The gimmick, you know, the second time out, it's not going to be as good, but... It's a fun book. It really is. And I like Joker serving as basically in, in any story where this has been told Joker as the last temptation of Batman Joker as being able to get, you know, one last gag in on him with his death, you know, going back to Batman who laughs and dark Knight returns. Like we've seen that in other places. I don't give a shit. I like it every time it plays out. And then the conclusion of this book where you have Batman asks Alfred and Gordon to go the full final measure. They can't bring themselves to do it. And that sets up your third chapter, like storytelling. Again, this book just fucking hits the spot. It absolutely does. There are, as I think we talked about a little bit with Creech that it would have been nice to get some more of that. I also wish that Bruce and Selena had met earlier in the book or there was more yes. time to develop that relationship. Yes, absolutely. Be- because it feels very abrupt that it's kind of like, oh, the love of a good woman is the thing that will save you from the, the bloodlust. And here she is. And Ta-da! real quick, and I could have used some more time building that up and again we could have subtracted some of the alfred gordon stuff we maybe could have subtracted a little bit of joker and the vampires attacking yet another group of mobsters because there are numerous basically the same bit jones draws the hell out of it every time i mean one vampire literally bites a mobster's face and tears off his entire face with his fangs like whoo didn't know vampire fangs could do that and they don't really do much with the vampire mafia right there's no there's no shot of Vinny waking up and thinking why do i want blood now and why the fuck am i in a coffin right there's no there's no there's none of that and that would have been an interesting story beat to follow up on yeah but this book i don't think it was overstuffed because i mean we've read overstuffed but looking at you scott snyder yeah I think the focus wandered a little bit and it would have been a little better if we had stayed more on Bruce's journey and as much fun as Joker was, and there was plenty of fun Joker in here, it would have probably been better with a little less Joker and a little more Batman and Catwoman. But a lot of Joker stories have that problem. Joker is a dynamic character and one of the few characters in comics that can steal the spotlight from Batman. What's that uh, quote you've broken out a couple of times when you use Sherlock Holmes in a story? Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes or Dracula. Story? Yeah. Yeah. Alan Moore. It was Alan Moore about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He'd never use Holmes or Dracula because the minute they show up, 
the story becomes about either Holmes or Dracula. Joker is just about there. Yeah. Yeah. And so is Batman, except when the Joker shows up. Any other you know, group of superheroes or a story of Batman fighting other villains, it's always going to be about, but where's Batman? Except when it's a Joker story. Again, less to say about this one. Not because it's bad, but because it's not. Red Rain, I think, again, because it focused so heavily on Batman. And as with the original novel, Dracula, Dracula only appears very sparingly. Dracula's there. It's his shadow that is what stretches across the novel and Red Rain. Here, Joker is front and center as much as Batman. And Red Rain also had the the stronger storyline hook, right? It created the world. It posited the question, what if Batman became a vampire, right? The follow-up to that is simply not going to be as strong. So, you know, this is, this is a classic sequel as being perfectly good, just not hitting the same emotional heights as that first one. I'm also never sure how I feel about it when in the end, I don't think Selena's necessarily fridged. Her death does motivate Batman's actions, but she makes an active sacrifice, an active choice to sacrifice herself to save him, which grants her an agency that most characters who would be defined as fridged don't have. And when the whole thing is built around love being the thing that protects you, that character has to die. I mean, the argument can be made, is that story a valid story in general nowadays? Or have we reached beyond that as a storytelling trope? But smarter people than I have made those arguments, and I'm sure you can find any number of arguments about them out there online that I'm not here to rehash right now. And and I will say this for Catwoman and her agency. She is in this fight for her. And and also for Bruce, like, you know, she's going to aid him. She's going to help him. But she's pissed at the fucking people who turned her. So, you know, she's got a reason to be in this fight. Not just that, oh, I love Bruce, I, I, you know, and whatnot. Even though I don't think she actually professes that right no that's mostly in his head about yeah he meets ariana creepy yeah yeah but that just goes back to your point we needed more time we needed more evolution of this relationship and we, we won't get it because after this just keeps going downhill we'll get there but i think that about wraps it for this one and that's all i've got so it means it's time to put it on the board (laughs) all right we are at 54 stories on our list number yeah number one is batman year one from batman volume one number 404 to 407 number 20 is half an evil from batman volume one number 234 number 40 is a Grim Knight in Gotham, Batman Who Laughs, The Grim Knight One-Shot. And down at the bottom, number 54, is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. <laughs> this is a better story about Batman fighting vampires and werewolves. Yes, so let's slide it in at 54, Matt. <laughs> um, I mean, we're definitely in top half. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say top 20. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't I don't think higher than 15 though. No. No. Um I mean 15 is Tower of Babel where Batman has plans to take out the Justice League and Rachel Ghoul steals them. That is a more important story to the evolution of the character. Uh, the next one, 16, is Cry for Blood, the Batman Huntress miniseries from last episode. That is more a Huntress story than a Batman story, but it's a really solid story. 
it's got very consistent story and art throughout. So I think that might top this. I'm thinking this is either 17 or 18. 17 right now is New World Order, JLA 1 to 4, and 18 is Little Gotham. I was not huge on New World Order, but you were. And so... But again, I'm, New World Order wins for me on one of four issues. So I'm not sure if 22 of 88 pages, and frankly, of that 22, six really incredible Batman pages. I mean, there's good Batman throughout that book, but this is mo- much more of a Batman story and more consistent overall. So, yeah, I think we can drop this in and make it our new number 17. Let's do it. See you soon for Crimson... What's, what's the last Mist. one? Crimson, Crimson Mist. Mist. Can't wait. But we're not getting there now. Nope. Because next up is Master of the Future. Uh, an Elseworlds one-shot written by Brian Augustin. Penciled by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Eduardo Barreto, colors by Steve Olaf, letters by Willie Schubert, edited by Denny O'Neill, with a cover date of February of 1992. This is the sequel to Batman Gotham by Gaslight. In this story, Batman is retired as Batman, as Bruce Wayne has set aside the cowl, but a new threat to Gotham's fair of the future causes him to take the mantle of the bat back up. I don't have much more on for a synopsis on this one because, oh boy. Uh, Brian Augustine is back, who wrote Gotham by Gaslight. The art on this is by Eduardo Barreto, who drew Speeding Bullets, uh, a different Elseworlds that we've covered before. And the art's nice. I'll give it that. Beretto does a lot of period research, and the book looks accurate to period. All right, Matt. It's time for one of my favorite segments. Spicing things up, as always, with some role play. Tonight, I'd like you to pitch me the character of Laroy. Yeah, yeah. Alexandre Leroy. La Raw. Yeah. Although the, the thing about I will say about him is I'm actually pretty sure he pronounces it Leroy. I'm pretty sure the whole accent is fake. We'll get there. Well, look, look, I, I am from Moundville, Alabama. That motherfucker is Leroy. <laughs> Leroy. Yeah, I looked up how it was pronounced because the mayor of Gotham pronounces it as Leroy as well. I'm like, I know that that's not how that's pronounced in French. But nonetheless, so, so we're doing the sequel. To, to Gotham by Gaslight, where, you know, Batman was fighting right. Jack the Ripper there. All right. Sweet. So the villain here is going to be a French guy who, who has a dirigible. Okay. okay. With, you know, crazy future tech. I mean, guess future for them. For us, you know, it's steampunk. And What's steampunk? It, it's, it's like, I don't know. The kids are all saying it these days. Steampunk. Ah, okay. 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 All right. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. What, what else you got? Yeah. And and he, he's always talking to his assistant, his friend. His assistant is a robot. And the robot doesn't okay. talk back. He's just crazy. He's talking to a robot. All right. Uh, so well, what's this guy's uh, problem? What's his, uh, what's his big beef? Well, he, he, he thinks the, the future is going to suck if we move to the future. So he wants everybody to, to listen to him instead, and he'll lead them to a bright future. It's kind of like Rachel Ghoul, only less interesting. Ah, there you go. You goddamn invented Rachel Ghoul. Congratulations. Rewrite the book, make it Rach, get the fuck out of my office. You know, there's an episode of Batman the Animated Series called Showdown. The episode is not a Batman story, it's a framing narrative with Batman at the beginning, Batman at the end. At the beginning, he runs afoul of Raish, and Raish leaves him, and this dates the episode, a cassette tape 
with a recording on it that he puts into the Batmobile. And he hears a story about Raish fighting Jonah Hex. And it's a Jonah Hex story. It's by Joe R. Lansdale, the horror crime writer who wrote some Jonah Hex miniseries for Vertigo back in the day. It's a great episode. But in that episode, Raish has a blimp. And Raish is shooting shit with the blimp. And I'm reading this book and I'm like, so yeah, I, I think this might have come out before that, but this really sort of pales in comparison when you've got actual Raish al Ghul with a blimp and Raish's sidekick in that episode, who there's a twist at the end, is voiced by Malcolm McDowell. Nice casting. David Warner as Raish and Malcolm McDowell as his man on the ground. It's a great, great episode. It has one of those endings of a Batman the animated series that they that they would do every now and then. It would be just like, oh, it gets you. Really gets you. It's a good episode. And boy, this pales in comparison to that. I, I like how in uh, you know the DC animated adaptation we take some bits from this. You know, we take the focus on the fair and sort of this eye toward the future. And I I think the the adaptation takes kind of the best of both of the books, which admittedly is not all that great. And, and I have to say, I liked this more than Gotham by Gaslight. I mean, at least, you know, there was no there was no Jacob. There was no the weird misogyny. But as we said in our extensive pre-show prep session for all of three minutes, this book has a central fucking problem. And that is in 60 pages, you are at page, uh, I don't know, 40 something until you get to the goddamn Batman. There's what the one, hell is wrong? There's one flashback earlier in the book where you get Batman for two pages, and that's it. Why do we spend all this time with Bruce and Julie Madison, the most generic Batman love interest? This is a character who every time she is used is just kind of like, I love Bruce Wayne. That's my thing. It's a little better when Matt Wagner writes her in his uh, Dark Moon Rising cycle. But aside from that, she's always just kind of there to be Bruce's paramour. And all of this stuff with Lois and his mysterious partner, who, again, it's one of these things where it's not even a mystery because it's obvious who it is. I mean, I guess you maybe are supposed to kind of think it's Rupert Thorne who shows up, but it's obviously not Rupert Thorne because the shadow is not Thorne's body type. You've only got one other character who shows up whose name that is like, well, it's obviously this guy who we've never seen before and who has a name for some reason. Oh, yeah. Guess who's the villain here? Brian Augustin is not good at mysteries. No, no. And really just not good at thinking up cool shit for Victorian era Batman to do. Like I would, I would have him be like more steampunk. I would have him do weird and crazy shit. I would have him like into alchemy and spirits and just kind of weird shenanigans. Like that would be fun and interesting. And this is just, this is just plotting. You know, I like it more than Gotham by Gaslight, but I don't like it a whole bunch more than Gotham by Gaslight. And as with previous low-ranking other Elseworld, the blue, the gray, and the bat, oh, the number of historical figures who are jammed into this book for one page. You're like, eh, eh, see that? Eh, eh. It's Wild Bill Cody. It's Thomas Edison for two panels. I'm pretty sure the guy that Bruce is hanging out with at the beginning is Teddy Roosevelt. Because he's like, Teddy, who wanted to be a big game hunter when he was growing up. I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be Teddy Roosevelt. Hey. You know, if you're going to bring in Edison, couldn't you have brought in Tesla instead? I want somebody to go and do an Elseworlds of Batman and Tesla. I know they're not really doing Elseworlds anymore, in this, this way, but can we go and do a throwback to one of them and get a Batman and Tesla? Tesla, you know, decides to 
put on a costume and become Pigeon Man because of Tesla's weird obsession with pigeons. <laughs> Batman, Robin, and the Pigeon. I'd read the hell out of that book. It would probably be better than uh, than this. Everybody has a Tesla story. The number of comics that have shown up that have had Tesla, whether it's Five Fists of Science by Matt Fraction or Razzle by Jeff Smith or my personal favorite, Atomic Robo. Seriously, folks, if you've never read Atomic Robo, read Atomic Robo. A, a better comic than uh, Master of the Future. Yeah. I, I mentioned it before, but Lua is nuts. He, he's, you know, talking to Antonio, his partner, and then you meet Antonio and he's just an automaton and he's talking to him as if he's responding and he's clearly not. And I'm, again, because of the way the mayor pronounced Leroy, I'm pretty sure he pronounces it Leroy. I'm pretty sure that the French accent is fake. And I'm pretty sure if, you know, it would have been fun if, you know, Bruce investigated this guy and it turns out his real name is Alexander King from Memphis or at least, you know, maybe from New Orleans. He's not really French. He's just, or or better Montreal, he's French Canadian, but then he would actually probably pronounce the French properly. So he probably should be from somewhere that you wouldn't pronounce it properly. And yeah, the, the using the French as King for his last name, clearly a fake name and in the end when he and bruce are fighting he comes at bruce with a sword and bruce like bats it away like it's nothing i'm pretty sure this guy is just a complete poser i would have loved to investigate that i would have loved to spend more time making him a character but as with jacob packer from gotham by gaslight he's a straw man just there to forward this plot. Yeah, yeah, it's a great character design, but there's nothing behind the design. Yeah, as I said, Beretto does a great job on this book. It looks real nice. And it does, he deserved a better book. And, oh, we're going to enter Matt's Batman Pet Peeves corner for a second. Ooh. Batman gives up being Batman in this story. He'd given up being Batman. And it's established when he and Alfred are talking that the reason he gave up being Batman was because after he took out Packer, his reason for being Batman, which was purely to avenge his parents, was taken care of. That's why I don't like a revenge-driven Batman. Yep. Because a revenge-driven Batman, once he's gotten his revenge, he's got no reason to keep being Batman. Yeah, the, the, the Batman of Gotham by Gaslight is Batman for a couple of months. A Batman who is instead driven by a quest to stop crime. A Batman who's there to make sure that no one ever suffers the way he suffered. That's a driving motivation that keeps him going. Which is what we see in the next book. Yes. But here, it makes sense based on this story and the way it was set up that he did quit being Batman. And yeah, by the uh, end... I did this for a bit. I don't suppose I'll give it up, right? Yeah. yeah. And by the end, yeah, he, he gets back in the cape and cowl And he is sort of motivated to be Batman, but by Julie Madison really wanting him to be Batman. There's no internal motivation there. And if he and Julie Madison were to not get married, I I don't see him sticking with being Batman because he just doesn't seem to care that much about being Batman. Nope. It's just sort of there. Yeah, 60 60 forgettable pages that you should find something else to do with your life. Not 60 pages that I actively hated, but I will have no reason to ever reread this unless we do like another 500 episodes and we're like, well, gee, let's let's go all the way back to the beginning. We'll start over and uh, I will have no memory 
uh, of this book because it will be so quickly forgotten. So I, I think that just means let's just let's put it on the board. Scrolling down, scrolling down. Uh, I don't think it beats Holy Terror because no. at least Holy Terror was interesting. Holy Terror took some wild swings. Um, I don't think it beats the first Robin story down at 47. No, no. But as you, it probably beats Gotham by Gaslight because it doesn't have some of the problematic elements of Gotham by Gaslight. And I exceptionally disliked Batman 523, 524, the saga of... Wait, no, no, no. I'm thinking of the all of the clay faces. What that, was... That's 550. That's down at 53. Scarecrow right. is, is Scarecrow being a whiny boy about his bullies uh, when he was a that was bad. teenager. Uh, yeah, that's the beginning of the... These are the you know, stories that aren't really great stories. The, the Scarecrow is the beginning of that. Because above that, in between Robin the Boy Wonder and that, is the Days of Rage, the Huntress story that has all manner of problematic elements, but at least is a story that hangs together. What would you think about putting that right at 48? Yeah, I think this beats Days of Rage, but doesn't quite beat Robin the Boy Wonder. Because Robin the Boy Wonder introduces Robin the Boy Wonder. And our final story of the night, Dark Victory. This is Batman Dark Victory numbers 0 through 13. Written by Jeff Loeb. Art by Tim Sale. Colors by Gregory Wright in Heroic Age. Letters by Richard Starkings. Edited by Mark Chiarello. Cover dates are November of 1999 to December of 2000. In this sequel to Batman the Long Halloween, a new holiday killer has appeared, the Hangman, who is murdering police and former police on holidays. Batman, haunted by the transformation of Harvey Dent to Two-Face, must try to find this new killer while distancing himself from all around him. And the specter of Haley's Circus appears towards the middle of the story, introducing Dick Grayson and Robin. I think we, you said it with Bloodstorm. This is a sequel. This is what you get from most sequels. It's good, but it doesn't quite reach the upper limits of its original, despite it not having as awful a last three pages as Long Halloween. Yeah, I, look, I think there's a legitimate argument to be had that this is better than Long Halloween simply because there's no Gilda Dent. And, and let me ask you this. You know, I haven't read any any of the, I think that, that maybe the handful of follow-ups after Dark Victory. What, the, what, what point exists for Gilda Dent in this universe now other than for Harvey to pine for her? Gilda reappeared in the recent Long Halloween special from ah, October. Ah. So she does not appear in Catwoman When in Rome, which is set during Dark Victory, which is the story of what happens to Catwoman in that middle chunk where she disappears. But Gilda reappears in that Long Halloween Halloween special from this year. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. She just kind of pops up as almost like a red herring in this book, you know, mentioned, but never explored. It's, it's, it's a bit odd. There was suspicion. I will say at the time, this book dropped in, as I said, 1999, uh, late 98 into 99, which was Wait, no, late 99 into 2000, excuse me. Wow, that was a moment. And I remember the, the fan, this was right when, you know, message boards and online communities were really starting to become a thing. And I remember being really involved in the DC, you know, fan discussion forums at the time. And so a book like this was big 
on those kind of forms. It was all sorts of, you know, people picking out clues and this and that. And I remember one of the big things that was questioned was, is Janice Porter really Janice Porter? Or is that Gilda in a wig? Yep. Yeah. And so there's lots of that. That's why, you know, they kept bringing up Gilda and her affair with Harvey. But again, it was a red herring. It was just there, especially also because Janice Porter as a name is so tied in to Two-Face as a concept, it feels fake. Because Janus, Janus, the Two-Faced Roman god of beginnings, endings, and doorways, and Porter, guardian of doors, it feels like a fake name. But it actually is interesting in that it would lead well to Harvey's pathology for him to be fascinated now by someone with that name fascinated but not fascinated enough to actually really care about them just more making them someone for him to manipulate it would have been interesting to see that character fleshed out a little bit more to understand what her obsession and maybe compulsion with harvey was like basically why was she willing to give up her career give up her freedom for Harvey Dent. Uh, although I imagine she never imagined giving up her life for Harvey Dent. You get some hint of that when you see that she was an undergrad when he was a professor. He seems kind of really young to have been a professor. I would have imagined more of a TA because of the, doesn't seem to be a huge age difference between the two of them. But there were some Harley Quinn vibes there. Her obsession with Harvey is similar to Harley's with Joker. But yeah, maybe uh, maybe he coached uh, the trial team at Gotham State Law, and uh, she uh, she enjoyed it. As with Long Halloween, there's a lot of theme to this. Long Halloween was a book about trust, and this is a book about loneliness. From the very beginning... This is a book about Bruce feeling alone. Mm. And it makes perfect sense because it's setting up Robin. And this is our fourth version of Batman meeting Robin. There's at least one more. But for for now, this is the the last one we're going to be covering for a while. There's some really good stuff to this meeting because we a we get more than the previous versions which were more from dick's point of view we do get more about bruce thinking about seeing the parallels between him and dick from his own perspective which is cool and i love the way sale draws dick because his dick is never in the same position in two panels consecutively. He feels like a 12-year-old. He feels like a kid who is constantly moving, which is what Dick Grayson would be. He'd be a ball of energy. And I like, too, how in this origin, the circus fits better into the ongoing saga of the Gotham mob. You know, we got we got some mobsters that look at the circus and say, hey, these uh, these are some freaking guys that go from uh, place to place. We could uh, we could use them as a front to move our stuff. We should uh, we should get them on board. Yeah, it, it's it's a great bit. It's a, a logical reason for Zuko to be involved. We get some more mob characters in here. We get. Tony Zuko introduced since the Roman was dead and Moroni was dead and Sophia has now taken over and we get Zuko, we get uh, Eddie Skeevers, the brother of Jefferson Skeevers from year one, we get Moroni's kids and we get another daughter of a daughter of Carla Vitti and a Metropolis mobster, both of whom appear a couple times and are just sort of there to round out the cast and to set up a particular clue in one of the hangman games because that hangman game wouldn't have worked without 
a particular number of people. So you needed Gotta to have be like, nine. Yep, Gotta you be needed nine. nine. That again, back in those message board days, that was one nobody got because everybody just assumed that it was the year one quote, that it was none of you are safe. But it's not. But that's such a memorable Batman moment. Everybody was assuming that that was what that first. Oh, yeah. We probably should talk about the hangman, shouldn't we? Uh, yes. The, I mentioned it in the, the synopsis, but the killer here is the hangman who's literally leaving current and former GCPD officers hung with games of hangman pinned to them. And each of them, the first one, which is Chief O'Hara, sniff, is a message that looks to say none of you are safe. But it's him, it's Commissioner Loeb from year one, Flass from year one, which kind of throws the continuity off because Flass appears in stories later on in the continuity, but mm, continuity is continuity. Brandon, the head of uh, SWAT, uh, the guy from SWAT who tried to shoot the cat that Bruce shoved through a wall, got to admit of all of them, he was the one I was most like, eh, he got what was coming to him. And some new officers that, again, I feel like were kind of introduced just so there were the right number of victims to make it through all parts of this story. I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize for that dead air. I was looking up stuff on Chief O'Hara because uh, I have a real soft spot for, for him from uh, a 66. Apparently his uh, first given name, Miles O'Hara, and then eventually gets stuck with... Uh, Clancy here called Miles and Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders. Huh. So, I mean, maybe they're not the same character. Maybe Miles O'Hara is still out there and he was his brother Clancy who bit it here. Although, I'll but tell of you, course, Ma- but of course, I read uh, uh, those uh, O'Hara quotes in uh, in that voice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I will say that Miles O'Hara, it's like, wait, Miles O'Brien? There, there was a moment there. <laughs> where, like, wait. <laughs> This is a book, we're covering 13 issues plus a, a freebie zero issue prequel. So there's a lot of material to go over here. We, we haven't yet talked about Mario Falcone, the, the lost Falcone brother who comes back. We haven't talked about all the stuff with Alberto. We haven't talked about the dumbass Maroni brothers who, boy, howdy. As another reminder, while... As far as we know, Jeff Loeb has only shown his racism in real life towards Asian and Asian American people. Those guys are the biggest freaking Italian stereotype I have ever seen. And I live in New Jersey. New Jersey. Uh, We haven't talked about Selena and all the stuff that's going on with her and her relationship with Bruce. There's a lot. There's a lot in this book. Uh, we bring in a couple of villains who didn't appear in Long Halloween. Uh, Mr. Freeze shows up. Penguin, who only had a couple panels in wah, Long Halloween. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, he shows up. I love the consistency of Loeb's Joker. That Joker hates not being in the spotlight. And in the end, he betrays Two-Face just because Two-Face is getting more attention from Batman than Joker is. And I certainly liked his explanation. Two-Face just wants all the mob gone, you know, just like Harvey did. Fuck him. Yep. Uh, Plenty of Calendar Man in this. More Calendar Man flushing that character out. And Sophia. We, we should probably talk about Sophia, at least spend a little time focused on that character, because it's, it's a really fascinating con- construction slash deconstruction of that character from the previous book. Because, spoilers for a, you know, 21-year-old comic, Sophia's the hangman, and it works. That really works in this book, and it's set up pretty well from the beginning yeah this is no this is no gilda dent reveal at the end and we have these series of killings that are meant to look like harvey dead and if you factor in the idea that 
this is simply just trying to erase whatever was left of Harvey Dent. It's a really solid storytelling note. The reveal, I bought it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't some shocking twist or swerve like the last one. Again, all made sense. And it plays really well into stuff we knew about Sophia from Long Halloween. Her desperately wanting her father's approval. There's the scene in the Father's Day issue of Long Halloween where she gives him the tie. He remembers to give him a present and he's sort of, you know, he's thank you and then goes back about his business. It's said repeatedly in this book, first by Catwoman, about Sophia, a father's love is a terrible thing or can be a terrible thing. And it's, it's there in this book. It's absolutely set up that Sophia is doing all of this as a way to avenge her father, whose body is taken at the beginning. And that's creepy. That, that's Harvey. And it, it's, it's never particularly hard to guess that it was Harvey who took that body. That, that's not really a mystery, despite there kind of being, you know, the big reveal at the end that it's Harvey who had the body all along. It's like, duh. Who else was taking his body? Were we really thinking that that was there because the Roman was still alive? No. I do like the stuff they do with Alberto, though. The, the driving him slowly mad is the calendar man's and Two Faces' revenge on Holiday. Now, I presume that no one figured out that at least some of the Holiday killings were Gilda, right? No, not until that recent special. That's where that finally gets addressed. But only sorta. Only sorta. Well, uh, we'll have to pick that up sometime. Yeah. The the threequels episode. Yeah. There's one artistic one really great well there's many great artistic sequences in this book but there's one that i really jumped out at me because alberto's been hearing voices that he says are his father's ghost driving him and at one point he finally picks up the holiday gun again and he starts stalking sophia and it goes black and white and it goes into the same format as the holiday killings in Long Halloween. And it's a really great bit of Sale homaging his own work. And it really works. I like the the visuals of interspersing the flashbacks with Bruce coming to terms with uh, his parents' death and Dick doing the same thing. And the same panel structure, the same placement of the characters is a very nice touch really was i mean there's more little notes that are parallels to the previous book there's a scene where two-face beats the hell out of the joker and the panels are very similar to when the joker beat harvey at christmas every issue opens with a splash and then a two-page spread but One of the middle chapters is an additional two-page spread of the Joker and Two-Face holding their guns at each other's heads. And it's a great shot of Sale's terrifyingly toothy Joker and the corrupted side of Two-Face's face facing off against each other. I like Gordon's office wall tracking that slow progression. Yep, that that was the back cover of every issue. That was a, a great little moment the the stuff with jim and barbara dealing with jim's loneliness and the failing of his marriage and the attempts to resurrect it that we know inevitably don't work but you get a little bit of hope here and uh and james as central and all of those conversations and discussions ooh, that uh that hurts yeah. One of my favorite of the, the callbacks actually to the other book was when Sophia is talking about Harvey Dent and the, the, the Two-Face and the acid couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, <laughs> which is the, you know, Johnny Vitti. Two shots to the head couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. 
the, the again the story the story structure here really works and the hints other than the the janice porter that it's two-face who is her mysterious boyfriend because the mario falcone is set up as the red herring for that one pretty early on but there are hints of it being harvey stuff like her trying to pick out a watch and she has two watches and gordon saying but why don't you buy them both and let him decide or when she meets him outside and her talking you're all wet a it's you know after we saw two-face in the sewers but also that line when gilda sees him after she assumes he shot alberto your hair's wet again it's it's a nod to that i like alberto as a character not alberto sorry mario i like what they do with mario the son who's really trying to go legit and how his whole life falls apart because everyone around him doesn't want that to happen I will say, though, hard to get a court order ordering someone to not use their last name. Oh, I want to call out something. Call out our spiritual sister podcast, Battle of the Atom. Totally separate, though. Totally separate. But they have a story that they reference that it's an ultimate X-Men story where ultimate Mr. Sinister confronts Professor Xavier and points out that Xavier has one great nemesis stairs and he pushes <laughs> Xavier down a flight of stairs on his wheelchair that's the line he goes stairs that's it's a big splash page you get the same splash page here with the Joker pushing Sophia's wheelchair down the stairs except the Joker absolutely knows oh that yeah she's faking it but she commits to the bit she does not go for her gun and probably would have if alberto hadn't shot the joker but it's again it's a very similar splash page that issue of ultimate x-men that battle of the atom likes to reference and we just want to you know call out our our good friends uh, zach and adam and if you're listening to our show and you're not listening to boda you, you should go over there and listen to that show too completely separate though again completely separate, completely separate different format different concept you know, I think sister is going a bit too far. Maybe cousin, acquaintance, friendsly. I mean, I don't. Uh, again, let's 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 be honest about this relationship here. One page I definitely want to call out. Listen, we we've said it once. We've said it a thousand times. If we never see Martha Wayne's pearls God, break, Jesus. it'll be too soon however the splash page to the issue where the graysons die the opening splash of the breaking trapeze and john grayson's hand on the trapeze as the rope snaps that doesn't get shown as often and so that is still an affecting moment and it was a much cleaner story flashback to all of our 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 robin episode that scene always had either a whole bunch of talking or the weird screaming and audience reactions and it was just noisy and you lose some of the emotional impact going with those silent panels very very good storytelling tim sale knows how to how to draw a gorgeous silent montage over it was a splash and two two-page spreads that tell you everything you need to know and it's heartbreaking and it's done absolutely the lighting the colors credit to gregory wright and heroic age for the way the spotlight on bruce in the background as Dick is up looking down at his fallen parents and it's it's a really strong sequence. I mean, we could spend a 
lot more time because it's just all the little nitty gritty details that you get in over 13 issues of a comic. But I think we've hit most of the high points. The, the I guess one other thing that's really, we haven't discussed at all is the, the thing where it turns out that Selena is the Roman's lost daughter, which I mean, it's, that's the kind of like, what a twist moment. It's not a Gilda Dent moment, but it doesn't do a ton other than explain Selena's obsession with the Roman and draw some parallels between her and Sophia kind of after the fact. Yeah, it didn't add a whole lot and it was more or less believable. You know, it didn't seem to be a, a total curveball. So yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. This one felt like there was at least some foundation for it led in. And you knowing it, I could see it versus Gilda, which again, knowing it, I've read this book five, six times since the at first ending. And it's like, I can read it and you can see it because you know the ending, not because the evidence is there. My final note on Dark Victory, I wish, I wish Rises had been based on Dark Victory like Dark Knight was based on the best parts of Long Halloween. That would have been a much tighter, cleaner, uh, more uh, emotionally impactful movie. And, And one final note for me, the very end of this book is Batman thinking about why he's taking Dick in and that he's taking him in so he can help him and he can help him not go down the same dark paths of loneliness that Bruce has gone through. And that gets why Batman takes Dick Grayson in, as opposed to some other stories we've read recently that really don't. Uh, listeners out there, if you haven't been reading the companion print Fat Chat column, Matt here is referencing Jeff Lemire's Robin and Batman, which is a flaming turd. Oh, that book makes me angry. But that but, being said, and that being done, it's time to put Dark Victory up on the big board. As opposed to scrolling down for the last one, scrolling up. I'm going to hit you with a with an opening bid. Okay. Number nine. You know, I can go with that. I that. think that is a, a good spot. It doesn't crack that top eight. The only thing I could want is nine or ten because of the import of Arkham Asylum. But I think, honestly, dropping this one in at nine pushes Arkham Asylum down to 10 and now kind of gives us a top 10 that is going to be really hard to break into. That chat agreement hour strikes again. We are going to eventually, and we'll have to cover them separately because they are very different stories, but the three Loeb sale Batman Halloween, that Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween specials they did that were one a year before long Halloween and it'll be interesting because you got a scarecrow story, a mad hatter story, and then basically a Christmas Carol, but on Halloween with Batman. And they're some great books, especially the first one, especially the scarecrow one. But I remember all three of them fondly. I haven't read them as often as I've read Long Halloween or Dark Victory. But that maybe will be next Halloween. We might do all three of them in a big themed Halloween episode. That's October. And we're recording this the week, you know, two days before, three days before New Year's Day. So we got some time on that one. And you're listening to it in uh, February. So March, April. Sometime in the 
the, the, the far future. I, I realized in my exaggeration that February was either uh, not funny enough or, uh, or too close <laughs> to being true. But yeah, yeah. Gre- greetings to you from the past in, in 2021. Next week, next week, we're dipping into three stories from three different volumes of one of our favorite Batman titles, Legends oh, of the Dark Knight. Shit. Yep, one oh, from each shit. volume. Going to be a fun time. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long Live June, Joshua Wheel, Zach Rabaroff, and Abby Hartbaum for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, at Batchat Comics, and the show's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on ComicsXF.com, dropping Thursday mornings. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. Sign up, you freeloaders. <laughs> if you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Will, thank you much for another great night. Thank you. Fuck my computer. Good night, <laughs> Miami. I'm out. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.